waiting outside for my cue. <laughs> I was invited into what was called a meet and greet with the president. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. I, w- I was fortunate to have a number of visits with President Bush. Presidents Obama and Putin voiced support for United Nations and Arab efforts. Peter Mayer served as the White House correspondent for CBS News for 17 years, covering the administrations of Presidents Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush Jr., and President Obama. Today, this award-winning journalist is a member of the board of directors at Interfaith Alliance and has offered to bring some of his world-class interviewing talents to a conversation on State of Belief. Because today, for the first time, Peter is going to be interviewing me. Things are changing at State of Belief. We're partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country for distribution and expansion of the show. We hope the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We've got so much planned for the weeks and months ahead and I don't want you to miss out. So subscribe to The State of Belief today. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you made a donation, thank you for helping to keep these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my conversation with the Peter Mayer, who is going to hopefully let me have it with some uh, hard-hitting questions, and uh, we'll see if I can survive this interview. Peter, welcome. Welcome. I'm very happy to have uh, to have the opportunity, and it's really an honor to have uh, you interview me. This is, this is thrilling. Well, as the old saying goes, turnabout is fair play. Uh, my friend, uh, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, I am tempted to say... I hope you have a prayer, and maybe you don't have a prayer as you take the risk to uh, turn the microphone over to me on State of Belief to interview you. Uh, But seriously, thanks for this opportunity. I'd like to start with your own family tree. I find it fascinating. I think a lot of our listeners might not be aware of it. You are the great-grandson of the famed Baptist theologian Walter Rauschenbusch, and the great-grandson of Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish United States Supreme Court Justice. You are, Paul, an interfaith alliance. <laughs> exactly, uh, that's right. How, how has your family tree informed your own faith journey? Well, it's a blessing, first of all. Like I, I have two ancestors and then a bunch of other cousins, uncles, um, other people throughout my uh, family tree, all of whom have been really instructive in what it means to um, show up 
uh, as a, a person in a country and uh, believe that each of us have a responsibility to do what we can to further um, a more just, a more equal, a more loving, uh, compassionate society. And so, um, you know, the Brandeis, that loomed very large growing up, I have to say. But I was fortunate. I grew up in Wisconsin. My grandmother, who was Louis Brandeis's uh, second daughter, moved out to Wisconsin to study economics uh, and got a PhD in 1928 and then stayed in Madison. And, and there she met the grandson of Walter Rauschenbusch, the son of Walter Rauschenbusch, my father, my grandfather named Paul. Um, and so Paul and E.B., Elizabeth Brandeis, she went by E.B., uh, got to know one another and they kind of like had a courtship. And I'm, as I've mentioned on this show, I'm writing a biography of my grandmother. And I, part of the intrigue was that I found their courtship letters over the course of a summer. And it was really moving. And they, um, they talked about their families and they, they talked about what they wanted for their, their lives. And they talked about like, you know, how important like camping was and how important like a civic mindedness was. And both of them were from very prominent, like, you know, religiously affiliated families. And yet they never talked about conflict around religion whatsoever. And um, and I have a, in my in my possession a, a letter from Louis Brandeis to my grandfather talking about how glad he uh, Louis Brandeis was that he had um, that his daughter had chosen um Paul, uh, because, you know, they they were sure that he was a wonderful fellow, but also how much Louis Brandeis admired Walter Rauschenbusch as a as a person. So, you know, this idea that people can come together to work for the common good from different backgrounds, that's in my DNA. I like to say I have interfaith heart. My closest cousins are my Jewish cousins who I grew up with. And so I feel very fortunate to have been raised with that awareness of diversity. But Diversity without competition, without judgment, and the idea that we can work together to create um, a positive society. Well, that flows into my next uh, question, Paul. Uh, We're coming up on a year since the announcement that uh, you would become the leader of Interfaith Alliance uh, following the retirement of our friend Rabbi Jack Moline, who used to host this program. Uh, Define your own view of the organization's mission and uh, our goals going ahead. Well, we are, you know, we've, we're coming up on 30 years, and I think that the through line um, throughout that time has been that um, people from different and diverse backgrounds and beliefs, uh, that includes people from many different religious traditions, spiritual communities, and people who come out of the humanist or atheist agnostic tradition, that we can forge alliances in order to ensure that Everyone is treated equally under the law, and everyone has a freedom to express their religious uh, and and spiritual beliefs, um, and that that kind of, that that the freedom of religion goes hand in hand with civil rights. So we want to make sure that as we talk about religion, that we recognize that democracy is diverse, and so that no religious tradition can exert undue power over another. And and so the, the through line for the Interfaith Alliance that going forward is that democracy welcomes diversity of religious traditions, and it goes hand in hand with ensuring that justice 
under the law and equal treatment under the law is guaranteed. And so where that comes to a head right now is that there is a segment of a population that is using religion in order to impose their worldview and their morality on others. And this comes into play with LGBTQ rights. This comes into play with reproductive justice. This comes into play with religious minorities not being able to uh, be perceived as full members of the American society. And we're going to stand up and represent the majority opinion that actually Everyone deserves equal rights, and everyone deserves equal treatment, and everyone deserves equal dignity. Paul, I want to come back to some of the really great points that you just made in a couple of minutes. But, you know, Interfaith Alliance um, has the same mission that a number of other organizations uh, share. Uh, But what sets Interfaith Alliance apart from the others? I will say we have amazing partners who we have a lot of mission alignment with. I think where we uh, really shine is that, one, we're not just in D.C. We are in D.C. and we do a lot of work in D.C. in the courts and on the Hill and in the executive. But we have people across the country uh, in alliances across the country that help inform our D.C. policy. So we are in constant conversation with people who are on the ground, who are raising questions and giving us um, some direction as we imagine, like, what should we prioritize in a, in our work? And so I'm thinking right now of uh, a new interfaith alliance that is uh, formed in Southwest Florida, and they are really bringing to the fore something that we all knew, but they are, you know, underscoring it, that the incredible rise of anti-Semitism in their community. They had a rabbi who was associated with the Interfaith Alliance down there who spoke up at a school board meeting and who was um, intimidated and um, really like, you know, was shaken. And it's just one of many um, difficult uh, experiences that the Jewish community is is having down there. And so um we at the national organization, you know, we already were aware, but we, we made sure to, as we rolled out our anti, mobilizing against anti-Semitism work, that we have real stories on the ground to explain why this is so necessary and helping people join together to, to fight against anti-Semitism. So, you know, there are examples after examples. We we tend to be in places where people really need us. We're in Wyoming. We're in the Central Valley of California. We're in Oklahoma. We're in Texas. You know, so people really need to have um, a con- a connective tissue and a network that helps people feel less alone, and helps people um, feel like not only do they can they help their local community, but their local community's concerns can be elevated up to the national conversation. Our nation's founding cornerstone, as we both know, the cornerstone of separation of church and state is at the core of Interfaith Alliance's state of belief, if you will, Paul. You're a student of history. Has it ever been more under attack than it is today? I think this is something that we are uh, hearing that has echoes from the past. And, you know, last week we had Kevin, the historian Kevin Cruz from Princeton, who really reminded us that throughout history, there have been moments when people try to kind of go back and put 
uh, the idea of, of um, religion into the founding when it's so clear that it's not there. But they do it for political purposes. They do it for um, they they. It's a power grab. This happened certainly in the twenties. It happened again in the fifties. It's really happening now. So what we can say is that. It is especially unfortunate because we're at a moment where there are more non-religious people than ever. There are, and the people who are religious are more diverse than ever. And so it's so important to have a government that can serve everyone and not have the government be overly um, uh, imposing um, mandates guided by a specific religious tradition but also not have the government interfering into religious communities. So the separation of church and state is really important to remind people that was there to preserve religion and to preserve government for all. And so this has happened throughout history and, and it's happening again. But, but I think this is like a, almost um, a reaction to the increased diversity of religion uh, in America and the and the increase of non-religious pe- people. And so they are very worried that the kind of Christian hegemony uh, is fading. And so they're they're attempting to, again, reimpose um, a idea of a Christian nation that was never there at the founding. Paul, you said uh, previously that Christian nationalism, something that's in the news a lot these days, is a threat to the very American way of life. Uh, we saw how the January 6th insurrectionists usurped religious words and, and religious symbols, the cross and, and other symbols. Uh, we continue to see how these same forces believe that the U.S. should be a totally Christian nation in their minds. So how's Interfaith Alliance responding to this threat? How should political leaders, especially especially as we're into the presidential election season already, respond to this threat? I think we need to call it out. We need to name it We need when we see it, and we need to recognize it. And um, we need to be very explicit that we are representing a patriotic view that is about the founding principle of religious diversity as a strength. We are those people who are actually protecting religion in all its diversity. And so, you know, when we see Christian nationalism trying to um, undermine democracy and use violence, I mean, that's the thing that is the most um, kind of terrifying. January 6th exposed a tendency and a willingness to use violence as a means to an end. And we've we've seen this in our own Interfaith Alliance um, community. We had a church out in uh, Fresno, California. All of their windows were broken by the Proud Boys because they had a, a fundraiser for LGBTQ people. And the Proud Boys is a great example of this. The Proud Boys has nothing to do with Christianity, but they've adopted a Christian identity. And that just shows you how kind of perverse this uh, Christian nationalism is, is that they're using Christianity to further an authoritarian, violent undermining of the rule of the people for the people by the people. I mean, they, they are willing to use force to undermine the will of the people as they showed on January 6th. So, you know, we have to be very heads up eyes open about this, and especially as we're coming up to this next election. So people of 
all religious backgrounds and belief have to be showing up. Right now, we have poll workers who are being intimidated. We have, um, you know, the undermining of voting rights uh, and the intimidation um, of uh, minority voters. We have to be, uh, religious people have a specific role to play in the preservation of democracy. Representative John Lewis said, the vote, the right to vote is almost sacred. And I feel that that is something that we have to take seriously. Our democracy is at stake. And religion has something really important to offer. We have civic institutions that can ensure free and fair elections, and we can show up for one another and show alliances and solidarity among all people. So we have an important role in this upcoming election to play, and I I urge all traditions to show up. Interfaith Alliance, uh, as we know, took a very strong stand, not surprisingly, with the Faith for Pride statement in support of LGBTQ equality. Um, Can you elaborate on that and explain how the organization plans to respond to anti-LGBTQ legislation that's out there and rhetoric beyond uh, the annual pride observance, which uh, just occurred. Yeah, well, we are, you know, this is um, this is a major ground for us in part uh, because religion plays a big role in this. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people who, you know, put forth anti-LGBTQ bills and um, and rhetoric use faith as the rationale and you know this is this is, people are people are using religion in order to discriminate against uh you know the people who are neighbors people who they live near you know it's 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 being <laughs> and so you know one of my you know kind of core ideas and it's uh and phrases is that let's use religion to celebrate not discriminate and and use religion as a bridge not a bludgeon and so you know we we do this all the time we're going to one of the central people um supporting the equality act that's in washington right now and you know i was in the front row as uh the the different leaders spoke up about why the equality act um for LGBTQ people was important. And many of them, you know, referenced uh, the representative John Lewis and talked about like how this is part of the the broad civil rights movement in our country. And so we had a great Faith for Pride this year. We had a, over 130 organizations co-sponsored across the nation. We had events in, in something like 25 states. It was really, really moving. And it was all, you know, it wasn't just to say, hey, it's okay to be LGBTQ. We were actually encouraging religious communities to rally support and show up, um, you know, against these bills that are happening across the country um, meant to marginalize uh, different people. And so we're, we are, we are active in this and we believe it's a religious freedom conversation because religion is actually in support of LGBTQ equality. I mean, that was one, one thing that I did go up to this, the sponsors of the equality act um, afterwards. And I got a chance to speak to many of them. And I just said, you got to mention faith. Because actually, faith is on your side. Like this is like the the polling is clear. Seventy percent of LGBTQ uh, of of all religious traditions, if you take them as a whole, support LGBTQ equality. And so, the this anti LGBTQ movement that uses faith 
does not represent the broad mantle of faith. And that's one of the histories of of the Interfaith Alliances. And one of the reasons we were founded was that we we saw that, you know, the Christian coalition and some very uh, fundamentalist Christian activists were claiming the mantle of religion to discriminate. And we're going to we're going to try to do just the opposite. So we're going to be we're going to be doing it all year. Um, and we're going to be focusing on how that impacts uh, the election as well. What, in your opinion, Paul, motivates the homophobia and the transphobia, the obsession, the brutal obsession with the way people choose to live and love among some on the right, including politicians and, yes, some pastors? (laughs) You don't have to say, and yes, some pastors. I mean, it's really unfortunate. Honestly, like, this is where I've come down. Like, if you in your personal life want to believe that man is the head of the household and woman is subservient, which is what like the Southern Baptists just reaffirmed. And they said, uh, women can't be pastors. You know, listen, I, I'm not going to tell you what to do because you're, that's your freedom of religion. It, when it spills over into society, then that's when I'm going to speak up. Now, what motivates it, I think, is fear. Um, I think there's a lot of fear out there of something that they are they worry that will undermine their own authority, that will undermine what they understand to be their own way of life. But I'll tell you, nothing would undermine that faster than having someone in their own life or someone they love be trans, be uh, LGBTQ, and, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, but I love you. What am I supposed to do about that? I mean, I think that this idea that these are, that you know, trans people or um, or lesbians or gays, bisexual, that they're that there's something other is the great is the great misunderstanding. These are our neighbors. These are our families. These are our friends. And so we're you know, I, I think there's a fear of the unknown. I think there's a, you know, a fear of losing power. But, you know, the best cure for fear is is curiosity, is getting to know people. And we encourage as much as possible for people to reach out, understand and have empathy and compassion for for people who are just trying to live their life without government interference, without, you know, without people um, being forced to, you know, adhere to the religious beliefs of someone who's, you know, has no no bearing on their life. So I, I. I think it's fear and and lack of familiarity, and and I pray for familiarity for all those people who fear um, trans people and and uh, and other ki- kinds of queer people. And to what extent, Paul, do you think it uh, beyond all of the the things that you just mentioned is a tool for them to fire up their base? Well, you're not, yeah, you're getting that's you know of course true is that this is I, I feel like they've they've kind of tested this and said okay well trans people are pretty marginal and who's really gonna you know speak up for them so like this this is something we can rally rally the base around and um, but you know here's what I think is that I do think that that has you know can rally some bases but I think we it's my responsibility and all of our responsibility to um to rally as well and to show a vision i mean this is what i think is is exciting about this moment is that you know you if you look around and you look around some i i live in new york city and i look around and i'm like oh my god this is so awesome people living together how do we how are we going to how are we going to cast a vision for our uh for america um that really shows that diversity is actually a beautiful thing and that it includes, you know, 
you know, let me just say, conservative white Christian males who are like, might be scared. Like, you're welcome. Everybody's welcome. Like, we're all a part of it, you know, and and it doesn't, we don't have to exclude. So can we cast a, an inviting vision of of the future that truly is, the, you know, what King would have called the beloved community where all are welcome, where all are respected, where all are treated with equal dignity and justice under the law? That's, that's what I... In, invite us to respond to this you know base rallying on the other side which is built on fear suspicion and hate let's let's build a, a let's let's rally um to, in a, in a different way for ourselves we'll take another break now and be back with more of this conversation with journalist peter mayer if you miss any part of today's program you can hear full episodes of state of belief anytime on our website You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Welcome back to the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. What do you make of the the disconnect among those who want limited government? They're always preaching limited government to keep government out of our lives, except when it comes to equality issues, the equality issues that we've been discussing, and flowing into, of course, uh, reproductive rights and, and even book banning. Oh, my God. Let me give one example that we've had on this show, um, Maharat Rory uh, Pikernis, who is really an extraordinary woman and, and an extraordinary mother who has a trans son. She is in Missouri. She is just trying to care for her son, just like any of us who are parents would try to care for our offspring. We would we love them. We see what they're going through and we try to provide them care. Missouri and is has been just hell bent, literally hell bent on, on trying to tell her she can't care for her son in the way that she and her doctor have decided are appropriate. Talk about government overreach. Talk about a, an attack on family values. Talk about an, a, a, you know, this, an attack on religious um, sensibility. She's a religious leader and you're telling her because of your religious belief that she can't follow her religious belief. That's an attack on religious freedom. So, you know, it is it is really, really shocking to me. Book bans are another thing. And Interfaith Alliance is really taking book bans very seriously, also as an attack on religion, an attack on democracy. If you try to tell us what we cannot put in our minds not only are you trying to control our bodies around reproductive justice, around trans issues, but you're trying to tell us not only that, but what we can have in our minds, what we can have the option to imagine. And, and what is religion aside from, a, a, you know, a belief, something that is learned? We call ourselves the people of the book and the idea that you can ban books and things like, I, you know, this now I am ranting, but I'm going to just rant for a second. If Go you ahead. can't, if you can't handle Tony Morrison and Beloved, if you can't handle that book in your high school library or as part of your career, don't go to college. You don't because you can't handle like 
the most stunning literature that reveals a truth that, yes, it can make you feel uncomfortable, but it can also change your heart. And as, as, as Bishop Barber said when we had him on a couple of weeks ago, it was great. It was like they're not afraid that they're going to um, make people feel uncomfortable. They're afraid that their hearts will be changed. And so I think book bans, um, all of this is like an attempt at control. It's a proto-fascist attempted at control. And the only reason I use that word fascism is because on this show, I, mean, I keep on referencing people on the show, but Jeff Charlotte was on and I think he's really, really smart. And he, he said, I never used that word because I didn't want to, I didn't want to belittle it. But he said, there are, mo- there are, there are movements in this country that, that warrant that label. And so I do think that's one of it. I mean, there have even been suggestions that the Bible should be banned. Uh, well, from I think what's happening. Wh- I mean, I think that that's largely happening from kind of free thinkers who are like, "Oh, you want to ban like books that matter to me? I'm going to ban the Bible." And all of a sudden, like, "Oh no, you can't ban the Bible." But if you really, if the test is like, "Oh, you know, is there polygamy in the Bible? Is there like, you know, bestia- you know Is there are there bad things that happen? Violence in the Bible? Of course there are. So if you're if you're if your test is like you know alternative sexualities and and you know illicit sex and and uh, um and terrible terrible like brutality well the bible's got it um you know and so i think people are are using that to make a point you know obviously the bible should not be banned but neither should other books i wrote a essay a long time ago um it seems like a long time ago. It's probably just eight or eight or so years ago. But it was for when the librarians had this, you know, book ban week. Um, and I wrote a piece called um, Recovering from My Temptation to Ban Books. And at, in in the piece, I, I, uh, I admitted, like, there was certain information out there that made me feel very uncomfortable and upset. I was like, and I referenced like, you know, ISIS recruitment material and terribly homophobic and terribly misogynist, um, you know, um, uh, books and things, things that I really hated. And my temptation was like, we got to get rid of it. Well, I I spoke to the lead librarian who quoted Brandeis at me. You you'll be pleased to know. And, uh, and she said like Brandeis is, uh, own decision in the case of Whitney was that the the cure for bad ideas is better ideas. It's not to ban ideas. And I think our, you know, in this in this moment where people are trying to, you know, ban books and use that again as a wedge issue to rally the base, it's, you know, it's a terrible, terrible affront. And we just can't tolerate it. We can't tolerate it in democracy. You know, sometimes you have to look at the calendar and say, is it really 2023 uh, book Ugh. banning? Yeah. Um, you you uh, earlier in our conversation, you you talked about the recent alarming increase in anti-Semitism. And as we know, uh, sadly, it's happening online, in person, uh, violent anti-Jewish hate crimes. Why this upsurge now from from your perspective? I wish I knew. I have no sense of it, but it is, um, you know, I think the question of why anti-Semitism is something that, you know, <laughs> 2000 years of history. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's, it's a terrible scourge and, um, and I don't have the answer of why. Um, I do think that there is, you know, there are 
you know, there is a a sense in which people have begun to feel permission. Um, and, you know, I, I remember, I, you know, I, I don't want to put all of this, you know, on, you know, a political figure or anything, but, you know, when, when people were in Charlottesville and you know, marching and saying like the Jews will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. And then, um, and then you have the president saying there were both good people on both sides. And I do think that there has been uh, almost a, a kind of a sometimes implicit, but uh, you know, other times loud dog whistles around uh, you know Jews, and you know, we did a whole series on anti-Semitism in this show, and you know, w- whatever is the reason for the rise, there is no question that there is a rise, and that we need to respond, and we also need to see it in the context of a broader. Um, you know, a broader you know system that that it is often tied to um, a white supremacist uh, uh, point of view. I mean, if you look at like the murderer of the people at the Tree of Life synagogue, I mean, he was a white supremacist who um, who talked about it online that he was gonna do it. And then he did it. And part of the reason he did it was that the synagogue was connected with Hayas, which is a Jewish organization that now welcomes refugees from around the world, not just Jews. It was started for Jews, but it rec- a lot of people from around the world, including many Muslim countries and Christian countries. And the guy was just infuriated about that. And and so we have to recognize that it has a context, but what is not under question is that we all have a responsibility to respond and um, to, to, you know, to do our, in our local communities, but also to call out our politicians, whatever they say something that, that has any um, resonance of anti-Semitism. Would Interfaith Alliance be in a position to call out politicians by name each and every time uh, they they utter this whether it's anti-semitism anti uh, LGBTQ um, abortion rights would interfaith alliance call them out by name right then and there yeah I think we I think we can name like where um, where we're where we're dismayed like when when um, a politician for instance you know after the 2020 election when the governor of Oklahoma won he made a prayer that he like every inch of Oklahoma is sanctified for Jesus and I think we we should call him out and say actually that's like a completely Christian nationalist um, prayer it makes other people in the state feel less than and it's inappropriate um, we're not in the we're not in the politicking business, so we're um, we're not endorsing or anything. But I think we need to p- call out people on any side of the aisle um, for um, for representing, I think, religion badly, for being uh, you know a threat to democracy, to for um, inter, you know interjecting um, you know spiritual warfare into uh, politics. I mean, you know, Ron DeSantis used the prayer in Ephesians, one of the Christian texts where he replaced the devil with the left. And I think that that's, you know, that's terrible, you know, for many reasons, but he's using religion um, and and creating like a zero-sum game of, it, it, it creates, it put politics in the realm of spiritual warfare, and it's just bad for democracy. And so we can, we're, we can and will be calling out that kind of behavior. 
what role will Interfaith Alliance take in the 2024 elections? I mean, does its tax status prevent it from taking a partisan stand? Um, yeah, I mean, we're at, in our current role, we completely operated out of a C3. So we will be involved with education, like who we think is representing the the freedom of religion as we understand it, uh, and religion as um, interplay with civil rights. Um, we will be um, motivating people to participate in democracy, to vote, to um, be uh, protective of the polls, to ensure um, you know registration of voters, uh, and and take part in democracy. And so that all of that will be part of it. We're going to be um, you know the the election happens during our thirtieth uh, year, and we're going to be celebrating our thirtieth year. Um, and we're going to be celebrating our democracy and uh, and partaking in it in a in an appropriate way um, and ensuring that the democracy is preserved and that the threats of violence that continue to plague us uh, don't prevail. You mentioned the uh, the 30th anniversary of of Interfaith Alliance, and there may be people listening right now who still don't quite get what the organization is. Who are the members of Interfaith Alliance? Interfaith Alliance is uh, basically the membership is open to everyone. We we um, we invite everyone to become a member, become part of our email list, uh, and and learn about like the actions they can take in their own community. We invite people to um, become you know if their if their local community is uh, it needs an interfaith alliance. We're starting interfaith new interfaith alliances. Um, uh, you know they're they're popping up all over, and so we. We encourage people if they feel like that there's an opportunity in their community to take part. But, you know, Interfaith Alliance is open to everyone. We deal with American issues, but we have an incredible community uh, of people who have many of whom who have been with us for decades who um, support us financially and also who you know when we invite them like hey this is coming up and we encourage you to reach out to your um, representative we have an incredible like um, success rate with that so if people want to become active and and have a you know, take part in an organization that really understands a, a healthy and positive role that religion and, and people of all different beliefs can t- take in, uh, take part in, in our democracy. Go to interfaithalliance.org and sign up and become part of our community. Is there room in Interfaith Alliance for people who have no faith? Oh, explicitly. I mean, we have been from the inception very open to um, atheists, agnostic, humanists. There is no litmus test. There is no, you know, and and often we are in coalition with the American atheist. Um, you know, we 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 who often also have a concern around like the proper separation of church and state and and so we we work in community with them but we believe you know, like especially more and more young people many young people are don't necessarily identify with a religious tradition but they have strong beliefs in a in in morality in um and and have a strong commitment to our democracy and that is you know we're we're reaching out to that community more and more and recognizing you know religion has no monopoly on on morality and no monopoly on good people who want to partake in democracy and create 
equal dignity, equal justice for all. And so that's what, you know, that's, we're very open. Paul, while this might not fall under the purview of Interfaith Alliance, I'd like to ask you as a pastor, what you make of the recent polling that shows the dramatic decline in the number of people who are going to church, synagogue, mosque uh, these days. Uh, Some ascribe it to the post-pandemic era. What do you think? I think these kinds of trends were happening before the pandemic and and perhaps uh, more so. You know, I'll just, you know, I'm really going to put on my pastor hat now. And, you know, the truth is that, you know, if church isn't providing what it needs to provide, then it's not people's fault. It's the church's fault. The churches can do better. One of the causes for young people of um, ditching uh, religion is that they view religion as hostile to LGBTQ people, and they don't want to be a part of an institution that does that. And I have said before, I gave the the commencement address at um, Colgate Rochester Crozier, where my great grandfather taught, and I said, you know, you know, I. I have, you know, my family, friends, cousins, diversity. They're not all Christians, and I don't need everyone to be a Christian. I don't care if everybody's a Christian, honestly. But I don't want people to think that Jesus was anti-gay, because it's just not true. And so my only thought about, like, you know, the sadness of many people leaving the church because they think that— the church uh, may be hostile to LGBTQ people, but that doesn't mean that the core of the faith is uh, and that Jesus is. And so I feel I feel um, inspired to say that to you and to, to all of our listeners is that not everybody has to be a Christian. That's not my goal in life. It's just that I don't want people to feel like they can't go to church because Jesus hates them <laughs> if they're queer or if they are a woman who has had an abortion or if they are um, from a different background or, or, uh, you know, if they, that, that, that's, you know, that's just bad religion. It's, it has nothing to do with the core of Christianity. So I, I offer that as, uh, as my only lament, but, you know, this is the reality of where we're at. And, uh, and my hope is that we can continue to respect people of all different backgrounds. And, um, these things can rise and fall, but, I'm raising my kids in the church, you know, so I'll say that, you know, I mean, like we're, you know, my, my husband and I, we go to, we go to church. Um, we're, we just went to a new church and my, you know, my older son, he was like, this place is awesome. And we're like, okay, well, that's good. And there's (laughs) things I like about that church and things that are like, I don't like love so much, but if he loves it, we're going to go. And so, you know, that's my, that's my personal thing, but uh, listen, I, I don't want, I don't, I'm not going to mandate anything for anybody, and and uh, I, that that's the end of that. And again, I want to emphasize that this polling is not only talking about Christian denominations, but also uh, synagogues and mosques. That you know that overall, the, this polling has found uh, that. And I'm, I apologize, I don't have it right in front no, of me. No, that, that, yeah, I've that, seen it. That it, the religious attendance across the board is down. Right. I want to end on on the note that you always sound, uh, Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, when you host this uh, State of Belief series. Uh, in this troubled world and, and from a, a desk where you deal with so many challenges as the leader of Interfaith Alliance, what gives you hope? <laughs> Thank you for that question. Uh, you know, I am so 
grateful for my life, for my work, um, for this role, and for the people who I have had the privilege to meet throughout my career and, and in my family. And so I meet people every day who give me hope. I, I'm amazed by what people can do. And um, I think if we lean into one another, trust one another, um, I have a great team at Interfaith Alliance. I'm so like, you know, we, we meet a couple times a week on Zoom and, um, and I leave those meetings going, yeah, we can do this. And so I think it is the people that I get to meet in this role. And that's not exclusive to me. The people are all around us who can provide us inspiration and opportunity. And so um, what gives me hope are, you know, the people all around me who are uh, moving forward, who are offering inspiration and support. And so I'm, I'm a very hopeful person right now. And, uh, and uh, I hope that I can be that person for you. Peter, and for others that I can, through my support, I can offer you hope. It seems to me as we close out this conversation, Paul, that uh, the term interfaith itself is almost synonymous with hope. Interfaith is a, um, it's an act of seeking community um, with difference implied interfaith for me is the you know this opportunity to say we're not going to be the same but we're going to be with one another and uh, learn from one another and be connected to one another the act of participating in interfaith the act of inviting interfaith is inherently a hopeful act because it says we can be together and celebrate the fact that we are different while working together and forging alliances to create um, a more beautiful, more just uh, uh, world that where all are, are equal and have equal dignity. Well, thank you so much. And uh, this has been an, an inspirational and informative and hopeful conversation today. <laughs> thank you so much, Peter. Listen, I, I just want to say like you, you've had like one of these legendary careers and, and, you know, you're someone who, you know, I've, I've, I've watched, you know, I mean, like, so for you to take the time with me to do this interview and be so generous and, um, and uh, patient and, and supportive, it means everything. And so thank you so much, Peter, for this opportunity. And thank you. And I just from a personal standpoint, uh, being on the board of Interfaith Alliance these past several years is really a uh, a highlight of my uh, post-retirement from being an active reporter. We are so lucky to have you. So, uh, and we are, we're going to have a great 30th year and, and it'll uh, springboard us into the future. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. We've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country for distribution and expansion of the show. We hope the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. 
please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping State of Belief on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part, both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief. And share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.